Hi, this is John Ankerberg, and today I want to present to you my very, very good friend, Dr. Wayne Barber. For 18 years, he was pastor of the huge Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was co-teacher with Kay Arthur for 14 years at Precept Ministries. He studied with Dr. Spiro Zodiades and co-hosted with him the national radio and TV program, New Testament Light, for 10 years. Wayne has taught the message of living grace which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, all around the world. He is president, founder, and principal speaker of Living Grace Ministries. And in February of 2011, he returned to Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, as senior pastor. Wayne's authored several books. The most recent one is entitled, Living Grace, Letting Jesus Be Jesus in You. And he has also co-authored, The Following God, series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber. Would you turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to pick up in verse 32 today. This is a long chapter. Have you noticed that? Verse 32, it just keeps right on going. And today we're going to talk about our supreme goal. If someone to ask you, what is your goal as a believer well, you ought to be able to say without any hesitation that the supreme goal of your life is to live as a surrendered vessel attached to Christ so that Christ now can do His work through you. The supreme goal of a believer is not whether or not they're married or whether or not they're single. Now you tell that to somebody who's 18 years old looking for a wife or a husband and they'll look at you cross-eyed. But the supreme goal of our life has nothing to do with being married or single in that respect. It has everything to do with being attached to Christ. Now these other things may be involved. Certainly they'll be a part of His will, but that's not the main focus of our living. Matter of fact, we saw in verse 29 through verse 31 the last time that we're to live totally attached to Him, nothing distracting us, not our wife, not our joy, not our sorrow, not our business, not the things of this world. That, that closed us out in the last message. And this has been the silent theme of the Apostle Paul as he's been working his way through the questions that the Corinthian believers had written to him back in verse 1 of chapter 7. Now whenever he suggests either remaining single or even getting married, we must factor in this supreme purpose that a Christian has. Being married or single is not Paul's total focus. Even though he's answering questions that have to do with that, he has a focus bigger than that. And so you must hear his answers in light of what he knows to be our supreme goal in life. I want you to go back to chapter 1, and we do this periodically, but it's helpful. You've got to remember this, and I just want to keep reinstating it. Verses 2 through 9 are a grid through which we view the whole book of 1 Corinthians. And it's marvelous what Paul does there. And one verse really is sufficient. Even though verse 2 through 9 is a series in itself, verse 2 tells us again. And I know this sounds redundant. We do it over and over again. But you can't miss it. If you get out of the context, you miss what Paul is saying. In verse 2, Paul shows us that as believers, we are the called out ones. Ecclesia. We've been called out of the world's way of doing things, which means... When we have a problem, we don't go to the world for the answer. We've been called into God's way of doing it. And so we must remember this. So when Paul answers us, he's not answering us like you'd find on Oprah. He's answering you like God would give you the wisdom to live. 
because we're brand new creatures. We don't live the way the world lives. We live the way God tells us to live. We are the church of God. He says, not the church of man. He says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. And we have been purchased by Christ's blood. We're owned by him. So whether I'm married or whether I'm single has got to fit up under that. And it's whatever God wants because I'm his property. And so whatever his will is for me is individual. It's good, acceptable, and it's perfect. We are imperfect but totally sufficient in Christ. That's so important to remember. It's the church of God at Corinth. You know, when I first studied that, I thought, Paul, have you gone nuts? Can that really be called the church of God at Corinth with all the problems Corinth had living upside down like they were? But you see, what they did did not in any way alter what God said they were. They were still who they were even though the world couldn't see it. And so what he's trying to let them see is you're totally sufficient in everything that you need. You have Christ. You're my church there at Corinth. We're sanctified. By the way, that fact that we're, we're, we're complete in Christ, we're sufficient in Him. If you're remaining single, that's all right. You're sufficient in Him. If you're married, your sufficiency is in Him. Wherever you are, you have your completeness in Christ. We're sanctified. The word means to be set apart for God's purpose to be taken out of the condition of being unusable in the virus of sin, having the cure of the blood of Jesus and been putting over into his kingdom, and now we're vessels for him to use. So anything that we do, whether married or single, whatever decisions we make has got to line up under that supreme, eternal purpose. He bought me, he paid for me, he has a purpose for me, and I must live up under that. Uh, we're totally dependent upon him and everything. He says to all of those who in, in every place, call upon the name of of the Lord. We live attached to Him. That's our supreme purpose, is to be attached to Him, to be vessels with nothing distracting or hindering that purpose in our life. So with this in mind, as you look at chapter 7, and you take that grid into it, whether or not you're single, whether or not you stay married, whether or not you get married, none of that should ever be your focus. Your focus should be living attached to Christ, being a vessel through which He can use. Now Paul knew that the problem of their flesh knowing as he as an apostle was writing scripture that would be the problem of our flesh. It was the problem of his own flesh. You see, the flesh doesn't like to hear what God has to say. And we've seen him treat that matter in that little parentheses he puts in verses 17 through 24 of chapter 7 to remind them of these very things. He says in Galatians 5, 16, and by the way, this is good to remember at times, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. I'm glad it didn't say you won't have the desire of the flesh. Man, hallelujah. <laughs> I thought those desires meant something else, but no, long time ago, I discovered my flesh is going to have desires till the day I die, until the day God gives me a glorified body. But he said, you won't carry out the desire of the flesh. He says in verse 17 of Galatians 5, for the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. You see, marriage or singleness is never, ever to be the focus, but when you hear God's word concerning your individual situation, your flesh is going to rebel against what God has to say because my flesh does not want to hear what God has to say. Therefore, we have to continually be reminded that we are purchased by, by His blood, we are owned by Christ, and that we have an eternal purpose, and that is to hear what He says and do what He says. Well, we come again to that very truth today. I mean, I, you think I'm just saying this to be saying it, but I, I'm trying to lead you right into what he's going to say today. He continues to come back to it. Very, very important to remember your focus. We are not to be distracted, hindered by anything. If you can live single, and that's the best way for you to accomplish the purposes that God has for you, 
then stay single. If to be married would better help you accomplish the purposes of being a vessel attached to Christ, then get married by all means. But the key is living attached to him with nothing distracting you whatsoever. There are problems either way you go. And what we're going to talk about today doesn't really get into some of the problems that singles have. But Paul was single, and Paul had the burden and the weight of all the churches on him at all times. So there's problems either way you go. But what he's going to say is, don't let any of your concerns distract you in any way. Make sure you live attached unto him. That's the key. That's what you've got to remember. Now, there are three things we want to look at today in verse 32 down through verse 34. First of all, he gives advice to everyone. He just opens it up. Single, married, whatever situation you're in, he gives advice to everyone. And it's this, learn to live undistracted. Look at verse 32. First phrase, but I want you to be free from Concern. Now, the little phrase free from concern is one Greek word. It's the word a merimnos. That's a little hard for me to say. A, mer, a merimnos. A means without. When you see that little primitive a there, it means without something, without it. And then the word merimno means care or anxiety. To be free from anxiety, from, to be free from worry. He said, I want you to be free from worry, free from anxiety to be without anything in your life that pulls you off the path of your supreme goal in life, which is to live attached to Jesus Christ. And the word has the idea, Miramno, to be divided. And, and that's, a, that's in the wrong sense of it. When you have care and concern, it sometimes can cause you to be divided. And when you get divided, your focus becomes distracted. The root of Miramno, without the little prefix ah, without, is the word that means, well actually it has two different meanings in the New Testament. One is a good meaning and one's a bad meaning. Uh, the word meramno itself means to care. Nothing wrong with care. It's to be careful or full of care about something, to be concerned. But it can have a devastating side to it and this is what Paul is referring to. The bad sense of the word is when we let those cares and those concerns, which in themselves are not wrong, when we let them become worry and we let them end up distracting us from trusting God. Now that's when it becomes wrong. That's the bad sense of this word. And that's what Paul is referring to. I want you to be without this kind of anxiety with this word. Now how can something good like caring for something and being concerned about something, how can that become bad? Well, when you let these things, circumstances, people, whatever it is, all that care and concern that you have, and you let it pull you off your track of being attached to Christ. When you let it overwhelm you, one of the truths that God has taught me over the years is whatever's over my head's under his feet. That's always a good thing to remember. He's already conquered it. But when I take it upon myself, when those cares overwhelm me, what happens is my focus is damaged. I'm no longer looking to him. I'm no longer trusting him. And as a result, I've become distracted. And I've become anxious. I become worried. And that is the bad sense of the word. As a result, you're pulled off your course of your walk with Christ. Now let me give you an illustration of that. Maybe you are married to someone and you have dreams and you care for that person, your compassion is there, but there's some things unexpected that happen in that relationship. And let's just say there's a trauma of some kind, maybe an illness to the one you love. You weren't expecting that. You care for this person. 
But all of a sudden you forget that you can roll that care over to Christ, that you're not there to determine your outcome, that God will determine it if you'll just surrender to him. And you forget to do that and suddenly the care that you have for that loved one, the concern that you have for that loved one going through what they're going through overwhelms you and begins to sour in your life, turns you bitter and this immediately shuts down the process of your living attached to Christ. Now we can just take those and magnify those illustrations a hundredfold. And that's what he's saying. Your concern is right, but you always as a believer are to let life work for you, not against you. These things are not to overwhelm you and cause you to be anxious and to divide you. These things are simply to be rolled over to Christ because you can't handle them, but he can. Learn to depend upon him. That's the whole essence of verse 2 that we quoted a few moments ago. You see, these cares and concerns can be channeled the right way. And then they don't get in our way of walking with God if we handle them correctly. This is what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4. You might want to turn over there with me, verses 6 through 7. Very, very significant to understand what he's saying. He uses the term anxious, and it's the term miramno, the same word we're looking at right here. And he uses it in the bad sense, and he tells us how to, how to handle it. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6. He says, be anxious for nothing. The word nothing is, the, is a zero with the lid kicked off. <laughs> Be anxious for nothing. Now I can hear somebody's mind say, oh, no, 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 no. I got something. I can be anxious over. No, you don't. Paul says, be anxious for nothing. That's a command. He says, but in everything. The word everything is a wonderful Greek word also. It means everything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication. Prayer has more to do with your attitude towards God and trusting him. Supplication are the request that you bring before him. He said, with supplication, with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving always implies looking back and being grateful. How many people can't trust God? Something's happened in their life. Somebody they dearly loved and were concerned about, but that divided them because they didn't do what Paul says to do here. They're not thankful for what God's allowed to happen in their life. As a result of that, they're bitter. It shut down their prayer life. They can't walk with God. He says, and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be known made known to God. Let them be made known. Bring them to Him. Take those cares and those concerns and take them to Him. Don't try to handle them yourself. You do whatever you do attached to Him and in the power that He gives to you to handle those things. The antidote for anxiety and worry is trusting God. And so it can work for you, you see. For verse 7 says, and the peace of God. <clears throat> this is not the peace with God. That came at salvation. This is the peace of God. This is what a lot of, this is the rest that a lot of believers miss in their Christian walk because they're trying to handle everything themselves instead of turning it over to God, letting God strengthen them. He says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension. If you've ever experienced it and you're walking in it this morning, you couldn't explain it to somebody if you had to. The mind will not comprehend it. Shall guard, shall stand watch over. And where your problem usually come from is your heart, that's where your emotions are, and your mind, that's where your thoughts are. And it's going to guard that, he says, in Christ Jesus. So there is an antidote for proper care and concern. But the, the bad side of it is, if you don't turn it over to God, if you don't allow him to do through you what only he can do, if you're not going to live attached to him, that turns into anxiety and worry, and it begins to hinder you and distract you in your walk with Jesus Christ. God will flood you with his peace. He may not change a thing in your circumstance. He'll change you in the midst of your circumstance if you'll walk attached to him. 
But don't let the things of your life overwhelm you to where they hinder you in your walk. That's what Paul is praying. I want you to be free from this bad sense of the word. I want you to be free from anxiety, free from worry, the things that pull you off the path. Because if they're not properly dealt with, they will hinder and distract us. Now Jesus uses the same word over in Matthew chapter 6. Look over there. Let me show you some of the things that can get you off track. Now he uses it again in, the wrong, in, the, in a bad sense. Not in a wrong sense. He used it. But in a bad sense, he's talking about the anxiety, the stress, the worry that comes when you don't trust God, when you're not living attached to him, when you get off course and you're letting it distract you. Matthew 6, and this is the classic Sermon on the Mount, never a sermon preached any better, preached by our Lord himself. And in Matthew 6, verse 25, look what he says. For this reason, I say to you, do not be anxious for your life. The word there has the idea of life of the things that relate to the world that you live in, the things that are around you. He says, as to what you shall eat, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with being concerned about that, is there? <laughs> Some people say, Wayne, you're overly concerned with it, aren't you? No, but what you eat, he says, nor for your body, as to what you shall put on clothing, is not your life more than food and your body than clothing? In other words, don't let these things get out of proportion. Don't let them come in and crowd out your walk with me. Trust me in these things. Verse 27, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to his life's span? Verse 28, and why are you anxious about clothing? Keep using the word anxious. Verse 31, do not be anxious then, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we clothe ourselves? Can't you, can't you see the, the young couple that's just gotten married, and they're sitting around the table, and they're worried about food, because there's not enough on it, and they're worried about clothing, and they're worried about shelter, and they're worried about their future, and the Lord Jesus says, don't do that. Don't do that. Paul says, don't do that. Don't do that. First Corinthians says, don't let anything distract you from your walk. But folks, these are the things that distract us. Sometimes it's not even the big things, it's the little things. And we can't seem to, to walk on and trust God because something very little can come into our life and throw us off. And Paul said, I don't want you to be found that way. I don't want anything to distract you or hinder you in your attachment to Jesus. He says in Matthew 6, 34, therefore do not be anxious for tomorrow. Don't even, don't, don't let the concern which ought to be there for tomorrow turn in to worry and anxiety. Don't do that. He says, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. You know, these all sound good and we all know the verses. Are we living them? Are we living them? You ever wondered why people are so frustrated, despondent, full of doubt, even, don't, don't even think they're saved? because they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. If we get back and live attached to him, you're gonna see a side that you haven't seen before. And that's the joy that he produces within you. The fruit of the spirit is love and joy and peace and all the things we're looking for, but they don't come unless we're gonna live attached to him. So Paul is simply in the context of people saying, should I marry, should I stay, should I stay single, whatever. He's saying, listen, push all that aside, man. Here is your purpose, live attached to Christ. Marriage or being single is not your purpose. You do whatever helps you to maintain your walk with God. Clothing, food, et cetera, et cetera, are tangible things that we should be concerned about, but not worried about. That's the bad sense of the word. It's, it's sinful to worry about them. It's sin. It means you're not trusting God. It means I'm not trusting God if I'm, if I'm the one. This sinful handling of our concern causes us to be distracted 
from our main purpose in life. Now, the good sense of the word merimnao is, is, is found in several places. As a matter of fact, look over in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 25. You see, it's an interesting thing here, sort of an enigma. When I live attached to him, his spirit in me produces the right kind of concern. <laughs> Concern's gonna be there. But when I'm living trusting him, he'll give me the right kind of concern. Not the kind that overwhelms me, but the kind that serves me and, and prods me and motivates me in life and shows me the needs around me. In verse 25 of 1 Corinthians 12, he says that there be no division, there should be no division in the body, but that the members, talking about the body of Christ, but that the members of the body, each believer, should have the same, what? Care for one another. Well, I thought you're supposed to be free from care. No, that's the same word, by the way, Miriam, no. No, you're supposed to be free from the wrong side of that care. You're, not, you're, you're supposed to be free from the anxiety and the worry that care can bring you if you're not living attached to Christ. But you're supposed to care for one another. How do I do that? Attach yourself to Christ. He'll produce within you the way that you are to care and be concerned. That's what, he's, that's what the fruit of the Spirit is. Of course, he also says in Philippians 2.20, if you want to turn over there, another verse, Paul says, For I have no one else of kindred spirit, who will genuinely, genuinely be concerned for your welfare. That's in a good sense. Compassion, care, concern is in a good sense. But it only comes properly when I'm attached to Christ. If I let that care for a lost world, for instance, if I let that care for the hungry of Chattanooga, if I let that care distract me from my walk with God, then a need becomes a call and I end up the most frustrated human being on the face of this earth. Because I've been distracted it's not my business, it's his business. My business is to stay attached to him. He then, through me, will produce the proper care, the proper concern, the proper direction, but nothing should hinder me or distract me from my walk with him. So in our text, when Paul says in chapter seven, verse 32, but I want you to be free from concern, he's talking about the bad sense of the word. I want you to be free from anxiety, free from worry, free from anything that will distract you or hinder you in your walk with Christ. If that means being single and remaining single, so be it, he says. If that means being married, so be it. But whatever state you're in, remember you have one supreme goal and that is to live surrendered to Christ, a vessel through which God can do his work. Nothing's to hinder that. Nothing is to hinder that. Now, that's the advice he gives to everyone, whether single or married. I want you to be free from concern. I don't want you to be anxious. I don't want you to be worried. I don't want you to be overwhelmed, anything that distracts you. Now, secondly, we won't finish this list today. We're just going to get it started. Secondly, Paul gives advice to single men, okay? All the single men, listen up. He says, learn, basically, I'm summing it up. He says, learn to live unwavering in your surrender to Christ. You have to learn to live that way. Your singleness can work for you if you'll live unwavering in your, in your service to Christ. Verse 32, I want you to be free from concern. That's blanket to everybody. Then he says, one who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord. Now notice the next phrase, how he or she, how he may please the Lord. That's a masculine pronoun there. And he's very definitely talking about the men here. Because in the next verse, he's going to talk about the women. Or, or a little further down, he's going to talk about the women. Now, how he, he, he may please the Lord. Paul makes a distinction between the man who is single in verse 32 
and the man who is married in verse 33. He's got some specific advice, but remember the thread of that advice is to live so that nothing distracts you, nothing hinders you in your walk with God. You have to be careful or you can read it the wrong way. He says, but I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned, word concern, marim now in the right sense, about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. Now, you have to understand, if you ask the Apostle Paul, let's just say he could walk in here. Wouldn't that be fun? I, I can't wait to get a hold of him in heaven. After about a million years of being around Jesus, I want to sit down with the Apostle Paul for another a million. <laughs> Paul, come here. Come here. Come here, man. Sit down. I'll ask you a question. And he was living today. You say, Paul, now listen, I want you to give me your opinion. I know, I know, I know God right now is not giving a command, but what is your opinion? Should I get married or should I stay single? Now, what do you think he's going to say? I mean, this is, he's already expressed that already in verse 7 of, of chapter, I mean 17, or verse 7, I'm sorry, of chapter 7. Go back and look at that. He's already told you what he, what he thought. And it's his opinion. He's very balanced in it. Go back to verse 7. He said, yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. And there's a twofold answer he gives here. First of all, I wish you were all single. But he knows better than that. If you were all single, you'd obliterate the human race. <laughs> there'd be no children, there'd be no nothing. He's, just, he's simply saying, but when he says that you be as I am, he means content and undistracted in his walk with God as a single man. So you've got to put those two together to understand the balance of what he said. But if you, if you nailed him down and you made him give you his opinion, he'd say, I'd rather you be like I am. You see, there's nothing wrong with that. That doesn't mean everybody has to be single, but that's what Paul would say. Now, but Paul had the balance in the equation. He goes on in verse 7 and adds this. He said, however, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. In other words, if you're married, hey, that's fine. If God's given you the ability and the gift to do that, get married. If you're single and God's given you a gift to stay single, stay single. He knows the balance of that. He knows that he's just one man who shares a certain thought here. But the important thing to understand as he speaks to the single men is, that his main thought has been, not married, not single, but living undistracted, living attached to Christ, you see. In verse 32, it's important to review back what he's already said before you even get there. Now, if you don't, it may cause you to think that a, that a, that a single person's the only one serious about his walk with God. Do you ever get that impression reading it in a surface trans? I was reading that thing, I was saying, hold it. What about people like me? That we're married. Am I not serious about my walk with God? Certainly we are. You see, if you read it wrongly, you miss what Paul is trying to say. In a statement, one who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord. The concern, the word concern, is the word marim now, but this is in the right way. Paul says that the one who is unmarried has no excuse. Now listen to me. Not to have the purposes of God as his care and his concern. Single men, listen up. You have absolutely no excuse for not allowing God to be the single purpose of your life. That's what Paul is saying. And it's in the context of either being single or being married. This is further expressed in the phrase, and he goes on to say, how he may please the Lord. That, that's the key, is pleasing the Lord in the sense of our surrendering to him. All he wants is to please the Lord in his life. Nothing's pulling him this way. Nothing's pulling him that way. The single man has the most beautiful opportunity here to be unwavering in his surrender to Christ. This is the ideal. But I want to tell you something, folks. With the single people that I've met across our country, sadly, this is not the reality. If you are single and this is not your life's characteristic to please God in everything, let me just say as carefully as I can, God just nailed you. <laughs> Period. 
Well, I don't like this church. Wayne, every time I come, I get nailed. <laughs> well, I'm just, I didn't write this. But the Apostle Paul just nailed every single man who does not live absolutely, totally surrendered to Jesus Christ. Because there's not one single excuse you can come up with. Paul being single is speaking to you, looking at you, and saying, you're not living this way? Then friend, what's your excuse? You don't have one. He just nailed every single man that's not living totally as a believer, surrendered and unhindered in his walk with Christ. The fact is that the single person like Paul is not tied down. Now, tied down meaning, meaning in the marriage sense, and he's going to cover that in the next verse. There's nothing there. There's not two to, to please. There's only one. You see, when you get married, you bring another person in, and all of a sudden, you've got a whole new set of problems. And those two people will probably produce others, and suddenly it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And all of a sudden, what you could have as a single purpose to serve Christ in, all of a sudden, is you're married, it becomes more complicated. And that's the only thing Paul's saying. He's not saying you don't have concerns. He's not saying they're not things that could pull you off course. He's not saying that. But he's saying when you put yourself up to a married man and you're single, you have no excuse for not being unwavering in your surrender to Christ. So, a word to the single man, live a life that is unwavering in your surrender to Christ. Let this be your focus. Not getting married. Let that be God's focus. Let God lead you to that person. Don't you live your life trying to find the right one. Boy, I remember when I was single, if somebody would have preached this to me, could have changed a lot of my, the years that I lived such a frustrated life. I wanted a wife so bad. <laughs> I remember dating people. I called my mama, mama I found her. Mother heard that so many times, she could have made a recording out of it and just played it back for me. I mean, I, it wasn't as much as I was asking God anything. I was telling God, God, I really do believe that this is the one. Now, you understand what I'm saying? I was engaged a bunch of times. I will tell you, being hard-headed and stupid is, is expensive. You know that? You realize that? Any single men out there that are looking for a wife and that's the focus of your life and you don't realize that you're sinning before God because your focus ought to be living attached to Him, do you realize how expensive this thing has gotten you? I mean, hey, I'm glad I'm not dating in the day's time. You go out to eat, it costs you 40 bucks before you get out the door, friend. We were able to do it for about six. I mean, I'm so glad that this all went on early on in my life. And I remember one day I was so thick-headed, would not listen to anybody. Of course, I didn't become saved until I was 32 years old. I thought I was a Christian. I grew up in the church. I thought if you're born in a garage, you made you a car. And so I just thought I was a Christian. And one day, a friend of mine who loved the Lord and loved me, he said, Barbara, you know what your problem is? You have let finding the right person in your life become your focus. And that made me mad. He said, I'm going to tell you what you ought to do. I said, what? <laughs> As if I cared. He said, if I were you, I would stop dating. I would not pick up the phone and call anybody else, throw away your little black book, and get on your face before God and say, God, I don't want the right person until I become the right person for them. I never heard anybody say that to me in my whole life. Never. He said, you're looking for the right person, but you're not becoming the right person for anybody. It dawned on me. My whole focus was upside down. I wish I'd have known this passage of Scripture. I didn't know it. I've never studied 1 Corinthians 7 until just right now with y'all. I'm a learner just like you are. I wish somebody had drilled it in my thick head. I've made, if you've made a dumb mistake or a stupid mistake in your life, I want you to know something as your pastor. I guarantee you I can top it. I'm the most hard-headed, thick-headed, skulled person I guess you'll ever deal with in your whole life. Why, why I'm your pastor, I have absolutely no clue. It's, uh, uh, honestly, it's just grace for me even standing here today. The dumb things I've done in my life, stupid things I've done in my life. 
because I wouldn't listen and I wouldn't surrender. Well, one day after I quit dating, I just quit. This same friend called me up and said, I had a thought. My wife gave it to me, so it's probably a good thought. I listened, and he said, you know, there's this girl. Her name is Diana Barker. I had seen her in the Miss Kentucky pageant. <laughs> I didn't miss a lot. I mean, I, I'm, I might not be very smart, but I'm not, I'm not blind. He said, you ought to call her up. You know, and it seemed like I had been, for been a long period of time there, and I, I just sensed that maybe I should. And I called her up, and, and lo and behold, I've been married to her now for almost 30 years. And you know, it was like God was saying, son, if you would ever put me as your focus, it's incredible how I can give you everything you're looking for. You'll never find it in a mate. You'll only find it in Jesus. But if you let me, this thing works for you, single men. I want to tell you something. If, you, if you're looking for the right person and that you become your focus, that's stupid. That's stupid. Climb down off that pedestal and get down before the God and say, God, I want you to be the focus of my life. I want you to be the one who gives me what I'm looking for. And God, if you want somebody for me, then like Adam, will you bring the woman to the man? And I'll just listen to you and trust you till that time comes. In the meantime, keep preparing me to be the right person for somebody else. You say, well, buddy, I've been single for 40 years and hadn't found the right. Well, you don't, evidently God's got somebody so special. You hadn't got there yet. If you'd hurry up and stay surrendered, maybe God have something for you. <laughs> but it's God becoming the focus of your life, not, a, not finding a wife. And so he says to the single men, you have no excuse, buddy. If you're not living absolutely 100%, totally unwaveringly surrendered, and I don't mean perfection, but if that's not your heart and your attitude, you have no excuse standing before me. That's what he's saying. And Paul says, I'm not telling you something. I'm not living myself. That's the way he lived. That's why he could speak to single men with the authority that he spoke to them. Not only as an apostle, but as one who lived that way. So he gives advice to all of us. He said, I want you to be undistracted. Live undistracted, whether single or married. He gives advice to the single men. Single men, I want you to live unwavering because if you start wavering, you're going to become distracted and as a result, you're going to mess up. You've got the greatest opportunity in front of you just you, that's all you're concerned about. Oh, I know, parents and things like that, they're always a concern. But Paul says, as far as every day, in and out, you've just got you to be concerned about. So live unwavering in your surrender to Christ. But then thirdly, Paul gives advice to the married man. Now, you see, he's not throwing the marriage out. He's not saying, some married guy say, oh, did you hear what Paul said? I'm sorry, honey, see you later. I'm going to live by myself. I, that's not what he's saying. The whole thing has got to be couched in the fact that you're to be undistracted. Nothing's to hinder you. So to the married man, he, he gives some advice. He says, understand the unavoidable concerns of your marriage. Understand them and put them in perspective. Understand is the, is the word I use because if you fully understand that they're unavoidable and they are concerns and you put them in, in the right priority, then God can bless you in that relationship. Verse 33, he says, but one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. <laughs> he may not have been married, but he knew something about marriage, didn't he? <laughs> That's pretty clear. Careful, Paul's not saying that it's, not, it's wrong to be married. He's saying that it's wrong for married people to care about <clears throat> what they should be concerned about in a wrong way. In other words, if you, if you, you're, you're gonna have unavoidable concerns but don't let that turn into anxiety and worry and cause you to be distracted in your walk with Christ. Now, there are unavoidable concerns to the married. 
Paul himself taught <clears throat> that the man who did not provide for his family and his others in his life was worse than an infidel. One of the first things that happens when you get married is suddenly you have, by your commitment you've made, you become the provider in your family. The covenant relationship teaches this. When you exchange robes, it has everything to do with that. In the Old Testament, there was a covenant relationship. And the robes had to do with identity, but it also had to do with protection and provision and those kinds of things. And so there's a responsibility. You're not just taking care of yourself anymore. You have got somebody now that you're taking care of. And a man who does not take care of his family is worse than an infidel. This is his whole underlying teaching in 1 Thessalonians, or 2 Thessalonians. Turn over there, if you will. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 6 through 17. A lot of verses, and I won't stop to comment on all of them, but let's just read them together in their context. They're unavoidable concerns <clears throat> that you have as a married man. Now, don't let those concerns distract you in your walk with God. <coughs> Excuse me. Boy, I need to drink an Alabama Coke. <coughs> I'll be all right. Ah. Boy, sometimes it's like somebody takes my throat and just goes, <laughs> and just squeezes it, <clears throat> and there's nothing in there. Hope there's no fat grams or whatever I swallowed in. <clears throat> Verse 6, 2 Thessalonians. <laughs> Boy, that's fat grams. You know, Diana counts those fat grams that she doesn't eat. I count them as I eat them. <laughs> <clears throat> Verse 6. He says, now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you've received from us. Now, he calls it an unruly life. Listen to who he's talking about. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. In other words, Paul said, we didn't come here as a freeloader. We came in, we worked our own way. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we might not be a burden to any of you. Verse 9, not because we do not have the right for this. Paul said, hey, it's not wrong. <clears throat> no, you, you, those who pre present the word of God are worthy of, of what, a, uh, even of double pays, he says in Galatians. But Paul chose not to do it that way because he knew the lack of discipline among many of the people he was working with and he wanted to set an example for them. Not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you that you might follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone will not work, neither let him eat. Well, that'd be a good phrase. Put it in an envelope and send it to the president. If a man won't work, don't let him eat. Period. That solve a whole lot in our budget in one year. Verse 11. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. <laughs> now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. In other words, all of them weren't living that way, but some of these people were. <clears throat> and if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that man and do not associate with him so that he may be put to shame. In other words, if he won't take care of his family, if he won't provide for his family, then you, you, you treat him as one who ought to be put to shame. In verse 15, and yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So the whole context there are some of these unavoidable concerns that come when you're married, to take care of a family. And I guarantee you one thing, when you marry your wife or your husband, you marry their family. And so your responsibility doesn't just go to one or the other, it goes to the whole family. 
Brother Nick, thank you, sir. <clears throat> I know y'all want some of this, but I'm sorry. <clears throat> What's in that thing? I don't know, but it makes me feel better. <clears throat> Again, in 1 Timothy, Paul brings up the same thing. These are unavoidable concerns. Now, men that are married, understand you've got some unavoidable concerns. Don't let those concerns distract you from your walk with God. Let God comfort you and strengthen you to meet those demands but don't let them distract you. Don't let them hinder you. They're going to be unavoidable. He says in 1 Timothy 5, 8, but if anyone does not provide for his own, <clears throat> and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So immediately you see the responsibility that a, a married man has. Now you understand now the argument that Paul is giving. He's saying, you're a single man? Rejoice, son. You only have you to look out for, and you have no excuse for not living totally unwavering before God. But not for you that are married. You have unavoidable concerns. Don't let those things distract you either. You, you make sure you let God strengthen you to meet those demands, but don't let them distract you in your walk with God. A married person must deal with those unavoidable concerns. Now, Paul knows the married person is going to deal with things that a single person is not. A couple of these things he mentions specifically. Look back at verse 33, 1 Corinthians 7. He said, but one who is married is concerned about the things of the world. The word for married means not in the state of marriage. Now listen to me. It means you have made that commitment and one day made your vows. It points back to when you made your vows, when you made your choice. And what he's basically saying is with the choice comes the responsibility. And so he says to the one who is married then <coughs> that he is, is concerned about the things of the world. Now, what are the things of the world? As I said earlier, there are two of you now. Uh, the decision to marry has now plunged you into all kinds of concerns that you didn't have before. The term things of the world simply means all those things that go along with living in this world. Now, think about it for a second. You know, <clears throat> I never worried about anything. I, I'm just so grateful my father and mother were full of grace. <laughs> Because I never worried about car payments or anything until I got to a certain age. And all of a sudden one day, my dad just dumped them all on me. I mean, suddenly I have some concerns. But I was single, so I could handle those concerns by myself. But when I married Diane, gracious sakes alive. My room never looked the same. I mean, there were things hanging in my bathroom that I never thought would be hanging in my All of a sudden, things changed. Life changed overnight. And suddenly it dawned on me, there is another individual total different personality representing a total different family that I'm married to. Suddenly, a, two cars became an issue later on in life because of my schedule and what I do. We almost had to have two, but we didn't have, couldn't afford to. That became a concern. Suddenly, when the kids got old enough, matter of fact, when they went to school, when did y'all stop eating at home, your meals at home? Y'all remember when it was? I can remember. It was when Stephen started playing basketball at Macaulay and Stephanie was a cheerleader at Grace. I want to tell you something, folks. When Macaulay had a game down there and Stephanie had a game over there, Diane and I just passed each other and waved as we passed by. Our staple became a hamburger and french fries, whatever. What do you th how, how do you think I got as big as I got, man? When Stephen was hungry, I'd eat everything he'd eat. That was my problem. We had a funny thing happen one time. We used to go by Crystal every day on the way home and we'd stop and get six cheeseburgers. Well, that's a little bitty. Crystal, two bites and you're, you know, that's not a, six makes up about one. Get a whole bunch of French fries and, get a, and we'd go home and then eat supper. 
And so I got to where I was eating the six cheeseburgers with Stephen and then going home eating supper with him. And uh, that's when we quit eating supper at home. And one day we were going on a missions conference uh, down in uh, Mississippi, a couple guys on staff, and <laughs> I hadn't had supper. It was after a Wednesday night service. And we pulled in a McDonald's. It used to be the McDonald's over here at the highway. And we pulled in there, and I ordered six hamburgers. <laughs> I had forgotten that this wasn't Crystal. And the guys I were with was going, golly, day Wayne, I mean, are you all right? I, you know, we're gonna, we were going to eat supper in Birmingham, and I'm ordering six cheeseburgers to get to Birmingham. And I remember sitting there trying to eat those hamburgers, and I got to about the third one. I'm thinking, golly, damn, I'm not full. And then it hit me. I mean, the sack was about this big. That I, it hit me what I had done. But, but see, all these things became concerns that we didn't have before. We didn't eat at home. And people say, oh, you're not godly if you don't have family meals and devotions around the table at night. Baloney. Who in the world is that? Said that. Would you see me after the service? I want to find out what in the world are you doing? We need to see each other sometimes on 9 o'clock at night, 10 o'clock at night. The whole world changed. Concerns, constant concern. Concern about now Stephen's in school. I got, he's out in, in Portland and, and, oh, concerns. I, he does, they don't have dorms. I got to help him take care of his apartment. I'm trying to help him with his insurance because he doesn't get out for another year. And if I make him go just work, he'll do that. He's a hard worker. But it would take him another six years to get out. I want to get him out. But I'll tell you what, when he gets out, woo, hallelujah, I'm going to party, son. <laughs> so sad you're dead. You're out. But I can't tell you the countless times that these concerns have moved in on us. The health of somebody in your family, the, the expenses it takes, the house, the car. And Paul is saying, listen to me, married people, there are unavoidable concerns that you chose when you choose to marry. They're your responsibility, but now you don't let those concerns distract you from your walk with Christ. That's his point. And he just hastens to say, but if you're single, you don't have all those. <laughs> you, you, you. <laughs> You don't have all those. <laughs> so therefore, you have no excuse at all not to live totally abandoned unto God. But when you get married, there are going to be those extra things. The word please means, he goes on and says, how he may please his wife. <laughs> oh, man, my time is gone. This is too much fun. The word please, I can't wait to get into this next time. The word please means to fit yourself to, to adapt yourself to. I got some of the funny stories to tell you how I did not do that right. I'll just tell you one, I gotta quit. <laughs> Good grief. But Diana was pregnant, had a month to go before she delivered Stephanie. And I'm trying to adapt her to me rather than adapt me to her. And I was going fishing, so I took her with me. <laughs> a pregnant woman, you know, in a 14 foot bass boat, aluminum, with me. And the mosquitoes, nine gazillion of them. Well, anyway, I'll tell you about that next time. That's not the way you do it. But Paul is saying you have unavoidable <laughs> concerns. And folks, listen, pay attention. Pay attention to the details. Pay attention to what he's saying. If you don't, you'll walk right out of here. And whatever's on you will distract you from being a vessel surrendered to Christ. I had another experience in my driving last night, or night before last. I spoke in Hendersonville, Tennessee, at a men's outdoor banquet, 480 men. I've been doing this for my fifth year to do it. First Baptist Church of Hendersonville. <laughs> Bob Vereen, my good friend, Bob Vereen, gave me directions. 
And they were right, but I thought they were wrong. I didn't pay attention. And I'm riding on the other side of Murfreesboro. He said hit 840 and go to I-40 west and go one exit, hit 109, go to 109 bypass, hit 31 and go right into Hendersonville. Sounded simple to me, except I couldn't in my mind picture where is Hendersonville? I know it's on the north side of Nashville, but I've always thought it was on the western side. It's on the east, northeast side. I didn't. I, I see I-840, 840, I pull off, just like he said. I drove 20 miles, folks. If I'd have driven two more miles, I'd have realized I was right. He was just in the middle of nowhere. I turned around and came back. And I said, I'm going to go 840 west. There is no 840 west. It dead ends right there. So I either had to get on going back towards Chattanooga or get on going towards Nashville. So I said, well, maybe I missed it back up here. Maybe there's two parts to this thing. So I got off and went back towards Chattanooga. <laughs> I got off the next exit and realized that wasn't right. And I came back and I said, this has got to be right. Got back on it. Drove 20 miles just like I did before. I said, this is just not right. Turned around and came back. <laughs> went up I-24. Then I got to Nashville and I said, oh my goodness, I can't remember now how to get to Hendersonville from this place. So I took I-40 east to Knoxville. <laughs> But as I was going out I-40 East, it dawned on me, wait a minute, I-40 East, if I'm going this way, and I'm supposed to be coming I-40 West, I believe he might be right. Maybe I'll hit 109 down here. So I went all the way to 109 Lebanon. Right, above, right before you get to Lebanon. And I turned on 109. And long story short, it should have taken me about three hours. It took me four hours and 20 minutes to get to Hendersonville. If I would just pay attention, if I would just pay attention, they've surrendered to Christ. That becomes a solution to the problems you're facing. Father. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org. 